in this hour, we're seeing some very interesting things in the world. We are still in a COVID pandemic. Um, we are wading through this. We don't know what the next months uh, hold. It's probably care and fair to say that all of us are done with the COVID virus, but the COVID virus may not be done with us. And so uh, I would very much like for it just to taper on out, but we don't know what it holds. We're looking in Ukraine, and we're seeing, uh, you know, really a, an overt attack from one nation into another that is in some way incomprehensible that something like that could happen since World War II, and yet it is happening, and we look at this and go, Lord, how can this be? And it has ramifications all through our world. Um, we look at our economy. Um, we have got some inflation going on right now we would rather get rid of. We don't really see how the economy is going to all work out. Uh, there are a lot of unknown factors. And as people, we tend to think when there are unknown factors and we don't see a path forward, that's when we begin to get anxious because we don't see how it's going to work out. And that's certainly very true of me. I, I take a whole lot more peace when I can at least see there's a plan A, and I like to have a plan B, and it's not too bad to have a plan C in some situations in life because lots of things change. But you know, um, one of the things that the Lord really wants us to know is that He is God Almighty, and that before there was even time, and it's very awkward to say this because how can you say before time since before is linked to the word time. But we, we're pretty sure time started at one point, and before time started, there was God. God transcends time, matter, and space. And before time, he looked ahead and saw there were going to be two creations. I keep thinking of reading the Bible where God is adjusting on the fly by what goes on. But he's not adjusting on the fly. He knows that when he made man, that there would be temptation. He knew that there would be a fall from the garden. He knew that there would be prophets. He knew there would be a covenant that he made with his people. And he knew that they would not adhere to that covenant. And he knew it would be necessary to send his son. And he knew his son would die and would suffer greatly. And he also knew that his son would come back and there would be an end to this creation. And then there will be a new creation. And the big differences from the first creation to the second creation are gigantically big differences. People say to me, well, if God's God, how did he allow the enemy, how did he allow Satan to exist? He only allows Satan to exist for a time. After a time, Satan is put away. Well, how did he allow evil to exist? Which is about the same question. He only allows evil for a time, and then that's put away. How does he allow pain to exist? He only allows pain for a time, and then that's put away. Well, it seems like he's allowing it for a long time. No, he's allowing it for a short time. Uh, I, I never can make references to life with Don Murphy no longer being here, because you'd always have to say, most of us will live like to 85 to 95, except Don, who lives to 105. But um, most of us are going to live less than 100, just 100 years. Well, when I was 12 years old, 100 years was eternity. Suddenly, 100 years is just around a few corners. It's no longer eternity. 
Now, John's a little closer than I am, but not that much closer. And we see that life is what the Scripture says. It's fleeting. It is but a breath. This is just but a breath. And God could see that. So he lets us go for what is a short time to set us up for what is eternal. And we, are, we have such limitations in our mind that if I was asked you to put your mind around the concept of everlasting life, just life without end, then our mind blows up. We can't wrap our mind just around the simple concept of everlasting life. No one here can really perceive what it would be like to live 10 million years. And 10 million years is a drop in the bucket to everlasting life. I personally have serious problems with no sleep in heaven. Sleep is when I recharge. There is no recharging in heaven. You do not need to recharge. There is no night. The Father and the Son provide light in a way we don't understand. It is totally, totally wonderful. And when Jesus talked to his disciples, who were very thrilled that they had been given power over the enemy and to cast out demons... Jesus said, if you want to be excited about something, be excited about this. Your names are written in the book of life. He said, that is something to be joyful for. Because the Son knows the presence of the Father, and He has gone to prepare a habitation for each one of us. And He said, if you want to be excited, that's the thing to be excited about. And Paul went over this over and over and said, we are not of the Jerusalem which is below but we are of the Jerusalem which is above, which is why in every one of our hearts we have this sense that we're not home, that we are pilgrims moving through. That's why that book is named Pilgrim's Progress. We are pilgrims moving through to find our home. But from the beginning, I just want to put this in just to a little context about what God was seeing from the beginning. God first desired that we be created. There was not a mandate or a memo that came to God saying there has to be a creation. People have to exist. Nobody sends God memos. God has no one over his head. God desired to make us, and he made us. And he desired to make us in his image, which many of us would say is too risky a thing to do. It is risky, and we have botched it many, many times, but he has put within us his image. He is spirit, we are spirit. This shell that we have of flesh is going to fade, but our spirit will live on eternally. And so when he decided to make us, he knew he was going to give us a choice whether to be with him or not be with him. He knew he was going to let us have the freedom to choose him or not choose him. And not choosing God is the definition of evil. And just as soon as God gave us the freedom that we could choose him or not choose him, then there had to be evil because not choosing God is what evil is. It always interests me that hell is the place God isn't. People say, well, I'm on earth, I'm in hell. No, you're not. God still roams the face of the earth. His spirit is on the earth. You are not in hell right now. But hell is where God isn't, and it is a most horrific place which is beyond what we can imagine in terms of just horror and terror. But God never meant for anybody 
to go to hell. The Bible says that hell was made for the angels that revolted. That's what hell was made for. He didn't mean from the beginning for everybody to go to hell. He meant and that there would be a way to fellowship with him. And from the beginning, he really, this is amazing to me, he really only gave Adam and Eve one thing that they couldn't do. Did you notice that? <laughs> I mean, he said, it's yours. All of it is yours. All the animals, all the garden, all of everything, it's yours to do with. You're in control. They will do what you want. You've got the whole thing. There's just one thing that you can't do. You can't eat from that tree in the middle of the garden. It's just one thing. Now, Helen and I have, I'm going to use the word in quotes, raised four kids, and they may have raised us along the way. It's hard to figure out, but we've raised four kids. There is no way I would ever give instructions to one of my kids and just give them one thing they couldn't do. I would be telling them a whole list of 20 things they need to do. Are you with me? But God didn't do that. He just said, there's one thing that you can't do. Now, when the enemy came into the garden, what did, the, what did he say? What did the serpent say? Well, first the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees, this is in Genesis 3, 2, and 5, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So the first words of the enemy to the woman was, you certainly will not die, for God knows that in that day, the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good from evil. So the first temptation that the enemy came in with, which the father knew the enemy was going to come in with, and the father knew that would be the toughest temptation. Did it ever bother you that the serpent got into the garden? What's the serpent doing in the garden? Why didn't God just build something that keeps the serpent out of the garden? When Jesus taught, he said, it is necessary that temptations come. It is necessary that temptations come. But woe unto him by whom the temptation comes it would be better for him that he had a millstone hung around his neck and he'd be thrown into the midst of the sea. But Jesus said it's necessary that temptations come. And when we read the Old Testament, we'll read that God let them go through this time to test them to see if they would follow after him or not. And we read that over and over in the Old Testament, that they were permitted to go through this to test them to see. And when we read about the kings of Israel... The same thing will be there, but God tested him to see if his heart was for God. And this first test coming in was really, really tough because it was the you will be like God test. No, you can't eat the tree, and God knows what he's telling you is a lie because he knows you'll be like him, and can't you see how God would want to keep others from being like him? And that today is one of still the main pathways that the enemy uses. Let me give you a clever thought to show you how what God said really isn't right. And that you are one more cleverness above God to know what he's really after. Now, Helen and I watch some of these murder mysteries things on the British TV and stuff. And things that I've learned from that are that... Um, 
Everybody in Britain is murdered if you just watch eight episodes, number one. And number two, no matter what anybody is saying, they're lying. They just don't do it. And the, the least, the person in the plot who seems the least important, who had an eight-second cameo within the first ten minutes, they're the murderer. You've just got to figure out they're going to take the top four people and they didn't do it. But when we see that, people want to be clever. They want to say, I know more. I have this best knowledge. And that is the roughest temptation because we have this tremendous tendency to say, I want to know as God knows. And I don't want there to be things that God knows that I don't know. In Deuteronomy, it says, secrets belong to God. Secrets belong to God. And now, but what we are revealed, what is revealed to us, we are responsible for. Now, he was talking about the old covenant at that time. But it noted that God knows things we don't know. And thank God. And, and that's great that he does, because we have this excessive view of our minds and our ability to think that is incredibly unwarranted. I mean, I, I used to enjoy going a little bit further in math to get to places where I couldn't understand the symbols that were being written on the, on the board. There's a lots of complexity, and you look at that and go, well, that's just beyond me. Now, I could have studied it, maybe I could have got it, but I didn't at the time. There are things where the Bible says that for now we know in part. It says that the Lord's ways and his thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. But we don't believe that. We believe, well, if he'll just explain it to me, then I'll have it. There are some things that if the Lord just explained, you would be no more intelligent than you are right now because you can't handle it. Do you remember how the children of Israel went to Moses and said, you tell God... If he wants to talk to us, stop using you as an intermediate and come talk to us directly. And if he comes and talks to us directly, then we'll pay attention to him. Moses went and told God, and God said, gather them together at the foot of the mountain. God came on the mountain, and he spoke. And do you know what the next word of the people was to Moses? Whatever you do, never let God speak to us again. It was so frightening. And they did not see God. They didn't see God. They just merely saw a manifestation of his power. And he said, whatever you do, never let God speak to us again. If we went down that road, that's exactly the way we would feel. We would be trembling on the floor if we saw him in his majesty. But we have no problem saying, I can ascend and know like God knows. No, we can't. It's a deception. From the beginning, there was a deception. God knew Adam and Eve would fall. He knew it would be the toughest temptation, and he planned redemption before we were created. It says in Timothy in two places that God redeemed the world before the foundation of the world. He planned redemption. He saw it all coming. I'm saying this to encourage you that God knows about COVID. He knows about Ukraine. He knows about wild things that are happening in our culture. He knows about economics. He knows about everything in our life. Helen can tell you that he knows about hip replacement. I think Jane can tell you that he knows about shoulder problems. And we're working right here with Karen right now on fractures healing. God knows all these things. And so when he ushered in the old covenant, what he said to them was, this is the way we're going to work together. And this to me is very important because we've got to lay hold of the fact that God established a covenant, and when Jesus came, he established a new covenant. And that's why in, when we read 
um, as we do the Lord's Supper, and we're reading, and you know, it's the verse in Luke where he says, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is being given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus said there is a new covenant. But if we, under, if we understand broadly what God tried in the old covenant, it wasn't that he just said, let's just have a lot of feudal years. He didn't say that. He came to the people and he said some very interesting things. The first thing that he said, which I think is really important and is worth reading, is the chapter of Deuteronomy 28. And Deuteronomy 28 in my Bible is called the blessing-cursing chapter. Chapter. That's my handwriting, the blessing-cursing chapter. Because he opens up that chapter that says, I'm giving you these laws and telling you how to live with me, that you obey what I have said. And if you do this, let me tell you what's going to happen. Now, these are good things. I'm going to read a few of them. So starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed will you be in the city, and blessed will you be in the country. Blessed will be the children of your womb, the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your animals, the newborn of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed will be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed will you be when you come in, and blessed will you be when you go out. Your enemies shall come against you one way and will flee at your presence seven ways. That's a good one. The Lord, I will command blessing for you in your barns and in everything you put your hand to. Then he goes on, he says, And the Lord will give you more than enough prosperity in the children of your womb, in the offspring of your livestock, the produce of your ground, and in the land which the Lord gives you. You will be the head and not the tail. You will only be above and not be underneath. Now, you can't expand on that blessing. That's blessing in every single part of your life, coming in, going out, the country, the city, everything you put your hand to. So the Lord knew that he was going to offer that. And then, now, that unfortunately just went through verse 13. The rest of the verses is, if you go the other way, you're going to be cursed, and it lays down all the things that would happen. And, of course, they went that way, and they suffered that curse many times. But, <coughs> excuse me, but what the Lord did was to say, I want to show you this because I'm giving you a chance to walk in this covenant with me. And the intent of the covenant was blessing. The intent of the covenant was not gotcha for committing a sin. God's intent was fellowship and blessing. In Jeremiah 31, it says, I was a husband to you. That's what he says. His intent that was that we have fellowship, that we be blessed. And even when he laid out the feasts of the year, at every single feast, when he'd finished describing what those feasts were going to be, he said, to the end that we may rejoice together. That God intended every feast to be a gathering that he and his people could rejoice together. And that was God's intent. But just like Jesus told the parable... People turned away from that. They went another way. 
And they suffered because they went that other way. And I'm not going to go through all the Old Testament and all those things. I think we know those things. But finally, he came up in Jeremiah in the 31st chapter. And in verse 31 through 34, he says one of the most marvelous prophecies, which is again repeated in Hebrews again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. For this is the covenant which I will make with them, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will no longer remember. So he said this new covenant is coming. When Jesus came, he said, I am bringing the new covenant. We even split our Bible into the old covenant and the new covenant. That's what the Old Testament and the New Testament means, the old covenant and the new covenant. And then Jesus spoke and he said, the law and the prophets, in Luke 16, 16, he said, the law and the prophets were until John. But since then, the kingdom of God is preaching. And there was a Levitical priesthood that went all the way up till John that was ordained by God. But after that, the kingdom of God was preached, and Jesus was the high priest, and we were all priests to our God. Now remember, in the Old Covenant, the, the, the priests... The priest portion was given to them um, without any land. They were, they were to have their own portion. And it says, um, I'm trying to, uh, Deuteronomy 18, yes, in Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 2, it says, For the Lord will be the inheritance of the Levitical priests. So when they passed everything out in the Old, Test- Old Covenant, for the priests, which we are in the New Covenant, the Lord was their portion. And in the new covenant, the Lord is our portion. Now, I want to make one contrast here of the way we would have done the old covenant and be satisfied, and then what God did. And that is in the temple dedication when the ark came in. Now, when the ark was brought into the temple, and this is in Second Chronicles 5, especially 11 through 14, when the ark was brought into the temple, I want you to hear what went on, because this is a big description And then at the end, what happened? Because in my reading of the Old Testament, this was kind of one of the most glorious, if not the most glorious, sharing of the fellowship and power and presence of God. So when the priests came out from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, and all the Leviticus singers with Asaph, Heman, Jedithan, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them a hundred and twenty priests blowing trumpets. Remember, a hundred and twenty. And when they were in unison, and the trumpeters and singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord, And when they raised their voices accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other musical instruments, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He is indeed good, for His kindness is everlasting, then the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not rise to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. 
Now, this was the bringing of the ark into the house of God. But the glory of the Lord so filled the place that the priests couldn't stand because of the presence of the glory of the Lord. Now, if you were describing a good meeting, and so, you know, if I, if I came up to Dick and said, Dick, what would really be an outstanding meeting? You hear people pray, Lord, please descend on this meeting or come to this meeting. And sometimes my concept of that, not the correct concept, is that the Lord's Spirit would just pervade, you know, the whole atmosphere here, and that the, His Spirit would just be here, that His glory would fill this place. So if I was reading in the Old Testament, to me, this is the penultimate experience. And you're sitting here going, whoa, the glory was so thick, they couldn't stand. They couldn't stand to minister. Wow, if we just had that every Sunday, everybody in the world would believe. And they wouldn't. They already had it there. But this was the old covenant. And notice that there were 120 priests that were, that were um, blowing trumpets in this, in this service. But God shows a clear distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant by what he does in Acts. So in Acts, the believers are gathered together. And it says in Acts 1.15 that Peter stood, stood up among the brothers and sisters a group of about 120 people. So we had 120 priests in the old story, and now we have 120 new priests in the new covenant. And you know what happened in Acts chapter 2. In this gathering, the Holy Spirit came, and the presence of God didn't fill the space physically. The presence of God filled the people as the Holy Spirit came and occupied the new temple, which is not built with walls, but is built of flesh and blood. So that Paul says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Ghost? So my penultimate experience of the Old Testament just got completely washed away. Because instead of God being in a volume and enclosed by walls, all of a sudden, God came to dwell within the believers. And it wasn't a minor experience. I mean, tongues of fire above their head, I still like that. I, I, that to me is, I love that part of it. And the Lord did, which is probably the most difficult thing to do in any of us, He controlled our tongue which it says in James that if you're really mature, your tongue is under control. And I am not really mature. I can sense when my tongue is not under control. But the Holy Spirit came and took control of us head to toe, controlled our tongue, and let us be an instrument of the glory of God to others, which revealed the essence of the new covenant. Not God out there, but God within me. So he says in Colossians 1.27, he says that I want to reveal to you the greatness of the mystery, of the glory, the greatness of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Now, the enemy continues to try to put God over here and talks to us about how we're relating to God who is over there. And God continues to say, I am no longer over there. I am in you. It says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new, all things are new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. And then in 1 Corinthians 6.17, it says, If any person is in Christ, he is one spirit with him. So what God meant to happen was that there would be a union that is impossible to understand in the way we understand physics, but there would be a union of his spirit with our spirit to make a new creation. And that what he meant from the very beginning was that there would be this new creation, which would be a uniting. Just as a husband unites with the wife, the husband wants to unite with us, the bride. And he wants there to be that union. And so he offers then his spirit to come. Now, this was really tough for the disciples. Now, I can just flat tell you, um, had I been a disciple and Jesus being telling me, it's better for you that I leave, I think, I mean, I think it would be fair to say I just flat wouldn't have believed him because I don't see any way that it's better for Jesus to leave because of how cool it is when he's here. Can you imagine sitting around a fire eating some fish next to the Sea of Galilee with Jesus already, by the way, getting the fish, cooking the fish, having the coals ready? I always loved that part of the story. You know, they brought in all the fish from the boats and they came to Jesus like, here we can do this. And the Bible says the coals were already burning, and the fish was already cooking. Where did he get the fish? They hadn't brought the fish in yet, but that's no deal to Jesus. A bigger deal is how could Jesus have a body that could eat fish and walk through walls? You see, if you want to throw your mind into these, some of these things, you can't handle it. You can either eat fish or you can go through walls. But it says the disciples were together and all the doors were locked, and Jesus appeared in the midst of them. Well, what happened to the fish? You see, we're, I'm not even on the right path. I'm, I'm saying this kind of facetiously. We think, you know, it says of angels that many of you have entertained angels unaware. Well, I'm pretty sure I can tell a person from something else. Well, it turns out, no. Many of you have entertained angels unaware. I'm no better at telling people than anybody else. And angels come and look just like people. There were angels that came, you know, and, and visited um, Abraham, when he was headed down to, you know, look at uh, Lot. And they came in and they ate. They sit down, he fed them a meal. So angels, are, these are impressive things. We're headed into a body. He says that when we see him, we'll have the same body he does. It's a body that can eat fish, and it's a body that can go through walls. It's not constrained by time. You can be in the room and he disappears. This isn't a body like you and I have right now. It's not a game but it's to tell you that there's more to this than our minds just come down on and limit God. So he wants, us, he wants to be inside and do amazing things within us. And it's very good that he wants to do amazing things within us because we are not good at doing amazing things within ourselves. So in the old covenant, it was kind of, here's the expectation, now you obey and do it. In the new covenant... The law is no longer written as the expectation, but the law in Jesus comes and fills us 
And it's no longer necessary to say to any person, know the Lord, because you know the Lord. And that was God's intent from the beginning. Now in heaven, in a way that we don't understand, the Bible says we will know fully as we have been known. And when we get to heaven, we will have the mind of Christ. Uh, I've shared this once before, but there was a tremendous testimony on YouTube about somebody who had led a terrible life, and he was just about to commit suicide. And I won't go through all the details, but if you had gone through the details, you would go, yeah, that is terrible. And he was hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. And as he called down, the Lord brought him up. He was just about to commit suicide, and the Lord brought him up, and he was some distance from him, about 12 feet. And the Lord began to walk towards him. And as the Lord walked towards him, he got to a place, and you all know what I mean about personal space. You know, you generally want to have, I don't know, 18 inches from somebody's nose before you're invading their personal space. And he was commenting that Jesus just kept coming. And he walked right in, and he walked right into him. And for about 30 seconds, he said he could see the mind of Christ. Well, needless to say, that was an incredible experience. And he, he, he ran out of words really quickly describing it. But in essence, he said, it's more beautiful than you can imagine. God knows what he's doing, even when you don't know what he's doing. And he said, it is a place you never want to come back from. And needless to say, this guy not only didn't commit suicide, but became an evangelist and has really a very strong ministry. I can imagine that. I can imagine that. But we don't, when, we, when it's something so far and above us, we don't even have the tools to talk about it. It's that much better. So it's, it's like having a child that's just learned to add the numbers up to 10. So they can add 9 and 8 and 5 and 4. And then, uh, David, then they say that they're ready to take on multivariate calculus the next day. Well, you don't have the tools to take. Well, no, I know math. Listen to this. 5 plus 4, 9. I can do the hard ones, 8 plus 9, 17. That challenged a few in this room. You know, 9 plus 6, 15. See, I know math. Multivariate calculus is math. Therefore, I can do multivariate calculus. And that's how we think. It is that ridiculous. And God is saying, you're not on the same plane here. And he gives us all these examples in the Scripture to show us. But still, we go, why don't you just tell me? And it's evidenced in our life because we look at circumstances, and when we don't understand circumstances, it creates anxiety in our heart. Why does it create anxiety? Because we rely on ourselves rather than relying on the Lord. And the Lord got into all this, and he took two long sections to say, I want to tell you what's going to happen in the future. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdoms will rise against kingdom. You're going to be persecuted for my sake. He said, all these things are going to happen, and the end is not yet. And there's going to be this. There will be these divisions. There will be earthquakes. There will be famines. So when we begin to see those things, what do we do? Whoa, what am I going to do about this wildfire and earthquake and famine? Well, he said those things are coming, you know. And he finished that by saying, but I'm going to be with you. And that's why you should be relaxed. But we are not relaxed because he's with us, because we don't love him and rely on him like we should, and therefore we are anxious in our hearts, and he's holding, out to him, he's holding himself out so that he would be peace for us in difficult times. So he says this in various ways in the New Testament, but he says something beyond this, and we talked a little bit last time. Not only does he want to come in and change us, 
but He wants to transform us into the fullness of the stature of Christ. Not just come in and live and go, well, Jim, you don't have such good stuff here. I'll clean this up every once in a while and I'll mess around over here. No, but His plan for each one of us is that we be changed to the fullness of the stature of Christ. Well, Karen, if I was listening to that, I would go, I would call that aspirational. You know, but if we're living in a word of, this is really, listen, listen to these words, but if we're living in reality, who do you know that gets transformed to the fullness of the stature of Christ? Can you name three? No, we can't. Well, see, it doesn't really happen, and so we have to regard that as aspirational. Aspirational is one of these weird new words that people throw around, like you don't ever get there, you just think about going there. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, and you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When I read that in the Bible, I said, I can't keep reading that. That's too discouraging. It's not discouraging at all. It just says what he's doing in you. He's coming in each one of us to change us into the fullness of stature of Christ. And he lays this out really good in Ephesians 4. And the, the real good verses are 11 through 16, but I'm just going to read a few. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. To the measure of the stature. He's changing us all to the measure of the stature which belongs to Christ. That's what he's doing. So when you get up and say, what's going on in the world? Actually, God knows what's going on in the world. He shared a whole lot with us about what's going on in the world. But what he's doing in each one of our lives is intent on changing us to the fullness of the stature of Christ. And he can do that. And, the Bible, and then in verse 15, it says, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, so that all of our life would go that way. Now, this is when Jesus told the disciples, he said, so I'm leaving you, it's good for you that I'm leaving you, so that the Holy Spirit can come. Now, you don't know about the Holy Spirit because you haven't met him yet, and the Holy Spirit is really cool in a whole lots of ways, and many of us know this. The Greek word for the Holy Spirit is paraclete, and we translate that often in three different ways as the comforter, as the teacher, and as the advocate. And it means all of those things, the comforter, the teacher, and the advocate. Sometimes you'll hear, see somebody translated as the helper. The Holy Spirit, the helper, is a comforter, teacher, and advocate. But, the, but one thing for sure is that he's the comforter. And when God talks about comfort... God is very aware that there's agitation and trouble and problems in this world and that we're facing these things all the time. And if we read, like in 2 Corinthians 1, I'm just going to read a few of these verses. In 2 Corinthians 1, it says, verse 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So I want to say a couple of things about this. 
Number one, it goes to a huge point to say that God is the God of all comfort. And when we're agitated or upset or we can't see how life is going or our kid is dating the wrong person or something else is happening or anything going on in life, the Bible says that God is the God of all comfort and he personally desires to comfort us and for us to comfort other people with the comfort that we receive from God. Now, when I first read those verses, I loved verse 1 through 4. But just when it got in verse 5, it starts off, Karen, saying, for, the, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, I said, well, let's just draw a line through that part. You see, I don't particularly like the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. What? Let's not do that. I've got enough suffering. Let's move that on to somebody else. But you see, what Paul kept trying to say was he didn't consider any of the sufferings in this life worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. And he said that he counted everything in his life as refuse, refuse, trash, compared to knowing the Lord. Now, I am not an advocate for putting sufferings on people. Don't get me. But Jesus went through sufferings. We're going to go through sufferings. The Lord has a purpose in sufferings. I don't understand that purpose. Occasionally, I think I have a glimmer, but I don't understand it all. But I do know that we do go through sufferings. But the sufferings are overcome by the abundance of the comfort that comes with God. Now, um, let's just say that you weren't connected to God, and those sufferings still came your way. Now, what do you have to tap into to comfort you? Nothing really. You don't. You have to only go to your knowledge and say, I don't see how this could help out, maybe. And you talk to friends, and you, we have all sorts of ways we try to get little taps on the problem, but we can't really be comforted. But that's why he says you need to recognize that the comfort from God is the same comfort you pass on to other people, and that comfort is what takes you far and above the sufferings. So yes, there's sufferings, but because you see the sufferings, now you can know the abundance of comfort that God gives to enable us to go through sufferings. You know that verse about Jesus where it says that he went through the cross for the joy that was set before him. He was able to endure the cross for the joy that was set before him. I always think that we're part of that joy. That he looked and saw Eileen and said, it's going to make Eileen a redeemed new person. I'm going through. He looked at Helen and said, Helen, Helen's going to be redeemed and close to me, and that's what I'm doing this for. And he looked at everybody, and I believe we were that joy. It wasn't that he just got to a place in heaven and just didn't have to deal with all the issues on earth. It was he knew from the beginning with the Father when he was creating that he was going to have to suffer for us. He knew. I hate to tell you all this. If I had been in the beginning and I knew that I would have to suffer for everybody here, I wouldn't have made us. I would have skipped that. That's not in my plan. But he loved us so much, and he loved us already knowing all the bad things we would do, and he loved us knowing he would have to suffer for us and redeem us. So he saw that joy that was set before him. So there's a comfort in God that goes away from the comfort that's in the world. And that's why Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, but as he gives. 
He says, this isn't a worldly peace that says circumstances will gradually get better. These things are in cycles. No, it's got to be a supernatural peace that the Lord leaves and the peace that he gives. Now, that's what he means for us to have. Most Christians walk through life tangentially associated with God and not receiving the comfort and peace of God because they pop in and out with God. God is on an as-needed basis. If I have a big thing in my life, my uncle dies, a terrible financial situation, something like, well, we go to God a little bit more, and we're like a plug on a wall. Helen has a KitchenAid mixer. Do you imagine that KitchenAid mixer is going? And say I was sitting over there with the plug to the wall, and I was just going, let's see what happens. And I would just touch it and pull it out and touch it and pull it out. Well, Helen would walk over and slap me upside the face and say, get out of here and plug it in. But if you can imagine what Christians do, they just take a plug and touch God and pull out and touch God and pull out. And they don't say, whatever he wants of me, it's his. He has my time. He has my children. He has my money. He has everything about me. He has my thoughts. He has my lack of understanding. He has my understanding. All of that is his. Now, that's the relationship where God is the comfort. And so he goes through so many scriptures to say, I want to make it clear to you that it is God that brings these things about. So in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, um, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now many of us have heard that verse, and that's one of the few places in the Bible that mentions spirit, soul, and body together. And so he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Not may John sanctify John, but may, the God, may God sanctify John. And may your spirit, soul, and body be um, made, kept complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the next verse to me is the more important verse. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also do it. Do you read that verse? He said, God himself will sanctify Helen's spirit, soul, and body. He is faithful, and he will do it. But it doesn't work if we take our plug and go in and out of the socket. It works if we dive in. Now, a number of years ago, and I can't remember this. Larry, you may remember this better than me. I, I think it was a combination of two visions, and I'm not really big on sharing a bunch of visions, but... John Kellogg was here. I know John was here. My mind is just too old on who had it, but I think two people had part of it. I had one part of it for sure. But there was a swimming pool with a very wide concrete deck around it, like 20 feet, like that right there, and then a swimming pool, and then another 20-foot deck, and the 20-foot deck went all the way around the pool. And there were about five or six people in the pool. They were not playing Splash, David. And so there were five or six people in the pool. But there were hordes of people walking around on the sidewalk. And then there was a big plain outside of the pool and then low hills. Low hills, like small mountains. And a number of people were walking away from the pool, like towards the mountains. And there was a blue ball, which I interpreted as the Holy Spirit, it was, like, it was about three foot high. 
And that blue ball was running out on the plane and knocking people down so that they would roll back towards the pool. It was really cool because it would come at them like right in the back of the knee, knock them down, and they would roll back towards the pool. But what was happening was the people walking around on the sidewalk were saying to each other, this is life. If you'll just walk with me, you will experience life. And occasionally, a splash of water from the pool would go out onto the sidewalk and land on some people's legs, to which they would respond, times of refreshing. This is life. And they would keep walking around on the sidewalk because occasionally a splash would come out to them. Well, of course, true life was in the pool and you needed to dive in where there were only five or six people. But that is largely the way things are proportioned out today. There are very few who have come in and given themselves to the Lord. But that is where real refreshment is. But there's a huge number that walk around on a sidewalk and occasionally get a splash which verifies to them, see, walking around on the sidewalk is the way of God. And then the Holy Spirit is pulling people from far away, trying to get them back in. Now, we need to be people in the swimming pool. And it takes the Holy Spirit to get us in the pool and to keep us there. But what the Lord has put on my heart is that we have got to be with our whole hearts crying out to Him, saying, change me. Change me, like with the psalmist. Search me and know me and see if there be a wicked way in me. And Lord, change me. Change me. And give free reign to the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll tell you from my personal testimony, if you genuinely ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, the Holy Spirit knows just what to do. And you will be convicted of things in your life. Now, you say, well, I don't have any of these major sins. You know, I'm not a burglar, a thief, or murderer, or anything like this. But you all know the sins I'm talking about. He'll convince you of of prideful sins. He'll come in and take the thing that's keeping you apart from the Lord. You require of the Lord conditions before you say yes. If the Lord wants you to do something, you have to have the thing fully explained before you'll take the first step. We have all these things in our life that are these hooks on the Lord so He can only move a certain amount. Just in case he does something we don't like, we maintain veto power to be able to get back in control. Remember, Abraham was called out from Ur, but God didn't tell him where you're going. He just said, come out here and follow me. And God will continually say that to us. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye who are burdened and heavy laden. And I will give and take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. But there was no coming con- un- with conditions attached. It had to be an unconditional thing. Now that's what the Lord's crying us out to us, so that we'll be those people that the Lord can move through. So it doesn't seem impossible to us that we can do the things Jesus did and even greater things which is impossible to me right now, by the way. But that should not be impossible to us. And God, to show that, picked people who were not particularly adept with knowledge, skills, and ability. He grabbed fishermen. Now, on the rank back then, fishermen was not an upscale occupation. 
But God grabbed people to, to, it says, to confound the wisdom of this world. So he could show that when God moves, the wisdom of this world is not even in the same dimension. And so it doesn't matter what knowledge, skills, and ability we have. It only matters what the willingness is of our heart. And when we walk that way, then we find the things that Jesus was saying. And, and those of you who have been in a move of the Holy Spirit, you know there's a whole other thing going on. Um, I was talking to my son, and he was saying down in Brownsville in this last revival that prostitutes would drive by the church and turn and come in and not know why they were coming in. It was for sure true in the Hebrides revivals that people in a town, without talking to anybody, would walk out of their houses and fall on the ground, wailing that God forgive them. No one talked to them. Nobody did anything. The Holy Spirit just moved in that place. This is certainly true in the Azusa Street revivals. Um, unbelievable things. I think my favorite story is that they had to call the fire department more than 20 times because flames were coming out from the top of the building. And the fire department said, no, this is the revival. We can't put that fire out. Can you imagine walking around, seeing flames coming out from a building, a fire truck come up and go, no, those are spiritual flames. That's not our job. Do you see? When the Holy Spirit is given free reign, He knows how to convict the world of sin. He knows how to turn hearts to repentance. He knows how to do all this. He doesn't need anything else from us except for our willingness and our open invitation to Him. I think John was sharing me as he talked to some people in South Africa and some of these other people were saying, why don't we have revival like they do in South Africa? And somebody else said, it's because here we want it. Do we want it? Do we want God to have free reign? Do we want his spirit to come and do whatever, even if it breaks into our schedule? Well, yes, I do think we want it. But it's something we have got to be clear with the Lord. Lord, come and search me. We are all being changed. We're being changed right now. The, the, the branch that bears much fruit is pruned, not giving a certificate of achievement. Do you know what I'm saying? If we had branches bearing much fruit, we would give them certificates of achievement. Or, Miguel, we might even give them a trophy. You know, we would step right on up there, depending on what your fruits are. But Jesus said, and I, and I you know, I thought about that. I said, Lord, couldn't you have just said, I'm very proud of you, but I'm going to work on you some more? I mean, that would be good. But he didn't say that. He just says, the Father prunes more. What does it say in Hebrews? For those whom he loves, he disciplines. And no discipline is, is pleasant for the time, but it yields righteousness. Those whom he loves, he disciplines. And sometimes we're under the discipline of the Lord. Well, you can't say, I want to get out from under the discipline of the Lord. The thing is to get with the Lord and say, what is this? Let me flow with you and get this thing going. That's what we need to be doing. Now, I'm saying these things because it surprises me regularly to run into the enemy, and it shouldn't surprise us. I'm almost done here. It surprises us regularly that the enemy contests when we're moving with the Lord. I was talking with Irene here and just talking about, you know, one of the hardest things in my life has been I'm too busy, I'm too tired. And I, if you're too busy and too tired, you'll get dull with the Lord. You it, that is not possible, to be too busy and too tired for the Lord. You have to stop and say, if I'm too busy and too tired, 
I need to get with the Lord more than ever. More than ever. That is no reason to stay, I'll get to the Lord later. More than ever. Doesn't it ever amaze you that you pick up the Bible and you go, okay, look, I've read the Bible five times. I've done all this. I've listened to all these teachings for years. The odds I'm going to find a new verse that's really relatively remote. You know, I've got other things to do right now. That's the enemy. Every single time you read the scripture, it's like something pops out and you go, How, that was in my Bible. How did I miss that? How did I miss that was in my Bible? Because the Holy Spirit teaches us and he teaches us from the word. He also teaches us straight, but he'll teach us from the word and all of a sudden he'll show us things. But the enemy hates us to open the Bible because of, because of the authority of God's word. He hates for us to open up our lives and to say it. Now, I want to just make sure that I'm clear on this. We're done with that old covenant. The law and the prophets were until John. Now the kingdom of God is preached. Now we have a Savior who brings his spirit into our lives to transform us, to make us into his image. We have that Savior. He is active All of that is going on. And the biggest play of the enemy right now into people that are moderately serious Christians is to dull them, is to dull them and say, you've pretty much gotten there. You need to keep talking to people. It's okay to go to church, but basically hold on till the end. And my gosh, if you watch the news, the end can't be that long. And that's what he tries to do. He doesn't say, leave God. He just dulls you out. He just dulls you out. The guy I've mentioned to you all before named Ramin Parsa. He is on YouTube, and he came from a horrific situation in Iran. Horrific situation. And they met in churches where they had to do, it was an underground church, and anybody that met was risking their life. But just like the Scripture says, they suffered, but abounding comfort came, and their meetings were fabulous. And as he got on the plane, he, he was really good because he, he had never heard the gospel at all. His testimony, P-A-R-S-A, is a great testimony. He had never heard the gospel at all. And he got on to um, dish connections and was hearing the gospel come in over you know, some cable connection. And he heard it one time and said, that's not it. And of course, he was Muslim. And he heard it again, and something twicked in his heart, and he said, okay, well, Jesus, if, you're, if, if it is you and you're God and Allah is not God, well, I'm willing to commit my life to you, but you've got to show me that you're there. Well, his entire body heated up from head to toe like fire. He opened his mouth and began to speak in tongues for three or four hours without stopping. Didn't even know what the gift of tongues was, of course. Went down, told his mom what had happened. His mom was bedridden with something terrible where she couldn't get out of bed for months and months and months. Laid his hand on her and she got right up out of bed. Needless to say, this guy was a very effective evangelist in Iran. Well, this was one preacher or two preachers preaching that had gotten out over cable. The Holy Spirit took a little thing, magnified it, and God just whooshed. But what was so embarrassing in his testimony to me was when he was coming to America, as he got on the plane, the Holy Spirit said to him, do not lose the fire that's in your heart. You will be tempted to lose the fire in America. And we lose it. 
We don't treat God as if the almighty God dwells within me. We don't treat him that way. We still treat God like he receives emails from us. And we hope that he'll read it, take it seriously, and reply in a reasonable period of time. And that's not the way he is. He's right here. He's right here. That's why the Song of Solomon is in there. He's right here. He loves us. He cares for us. Everything about us is beautiful to him. And we treat him often, not saying go away. We just don't be with him unless we need something. And he's trying to get us to be so much better. And that's why Paul can say the things he said about being with Christ supersedes shipwrecks and I was beaten this many times with 39 lashes. That's nothing. I'm with Christ. I can tell you absolutely, if I was beaten one time with 39 lashes, I would write a book. I would let all sorts of people know about it. Paul said, that's nothing. I know Jesus. Do you see how, he, how much of a place he's in that I'm not in? It's, it, it's, it's a tremendous thing. But that's the new covenant, that God dwell in me, that I be a new creation, that I know the fullness of God. And that's what completes me, nothing else. And it does it in a way that my mind cannot understand. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you that you are always with us in times we understand events or think we understand events, and in times when we don't understand events at all. Thank you that you have put each one of us here for purpose, and you have things for us to do today, tomorrow, the next day, you have things for us to, people to talk to. You have things for us to be involved in. And you know how to lead us and direct us, Lord. So I ask you, Lord, that you change our hearts to be willing. That you melt excuses that we have in our lives. And that we look at you more and more and more and not the things of the world. Only you, Lord, can change us that way. Thank you for each one gathered here today. We pray for the authorities. We pray for the church, the true church. We pray, Lord, that believers would come together and know you in richness and be able to share you in fullness to the world. And we ask, Lord, that you especially look in our lives to find ways that we are erring and move us, Lord, that we be close to you Repent and change and follow after you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.